Well, as I've mentioned, we have incorporated a Seder uh, Passover dinner into our celebration of Resurrection Sunday the last couple of years. And in my experience and in talking with many of you, this has increased our anticipation, celebrating all that Christ has done for us. It's helped us to see how the entire Old Testament climaxes in this Passover death and resurrection of the Messiah. It's helped us to see how Old Testament prophecies come together with the New Testament and it's strengthened our faith and caused us to glorify God. It's a little bit different this year. You'll notice in years past, we've had multiple elements on the table. And what we've tried to do this year is to make this as authentic as possible. And so 1,400 years ago, when the original Passover was described in the book of Exodus, there were minimal things on the table. We know for a fact from Exodus that there was at least four things. A lamb, a roasted lamb, lamb meat, wine, bread, and bitter herbs. And so there's never been less than that. And so some of our celebration that we had together last year, we had like a shank bone and an egg and charo set that represented the the mortar in Egypt. And some of those things over time have been added to the traditions, but never less than what the disciples would have experienced. And so tonight on your tables, you're just going to see some unleavened bread and some bitter herbs, uh, no wine, but a representation of that with the um, the copper cups that the disciples would have either had four separate cups or one cup that they drank out of four different times. So those are the things that are on your table. And again, it's going to look different this year than last year. We could not have done any of this without all the gifts of the body motivated to make this room look this way. And then for me not to have to worry about anything but to show up and to bring my gifts is an absolute blessing. So thanks, Jessica, and um, I'm going to miss people if I start naming. And everybody else who's participated to make this experience for us and to help us to focus on, to consider, to celebrate Jesus um, possible. So thanks, thanks, church family. Uh, for continuing to come together. So this year, it's been my hope to focus on the celebration of the Passover Seder, the Passover meal, as the disciples would have experienced it. So in the back, you'll, if you got one of our sheets from this week, you'll get a normal handout sheet. Well, thanks to my lack of computer skills, I could not get the four gospel presentations um, on the back of the Passover meal. So there's two she- separate sheets of paper back in the back, if you haven't got one. Um, one is our normal sheet that we have, and then the other one is the four gospel accounts of the Passover lined up next to each other. Church, that was really helpful in my study. And I would just encourage you, I sent a note out to the men, um, hey, you might want to walk through these accounts as a family. If you didn't get that or weren't a part of that, I just encourage you to take those four gospel accounts of the Passover and read through them um, together with your friends, if you're, if you're not part of a bigger family, or with your family. 
but much like celebrating the historical, traditional Jewish Passovers like we have in the past, it's really my hope that our time together will strengthen our faith, it will aid us in our celebration and our worship of Jesus as the Passover Lamb. We've talked about this reality the last several weeks, like I've said in my prayer, just in considering Jesus that we put him before us and that this tonight will strengthen our commitments to following Jesus and organizing our lives around him. Just like in many ways, as much as we can, this, this night for the disciples impacted their lives and changed them forever. So to do that, I want to walk through the disciples' mindset as much as possible when they were um, celebrating with Jesus. What were their shaping cultural values? What ideals and mindsets and values did they bring into the Passover meal with Jesus? What lenses through which did they hear Jesus's words? And how would that experience with Christ eating this particular Passover, how would that have changed them? And what ways did they look at life completely differently because of this celebration, because of this meal? So to do that, I've got some goals for us this evening. I want to look at two faith heroes of the Old Testament that the disciples would have been profoundly familiar with from growing up. These would have been their faith heroes that they would have regularly have been reading about and would have been an integral part of their culture and their thinking. I want to read some foundational Old Testament passages that the disciples would have been familiar with that also create the structure for the Passover meal and how the Passover takes place and why it takes place. The passages we're going to read would be passages that were read annually every year with the disciples and their families growing up. So we want to take a look at those passages. Next, I want to take some time to actually, I'm going to get some help and we're going to try to replicate as best as we can the disciples Passover and how they would have logistically walked through it. So when we get to this part, I'm going to I'm going to try to calm myself down and give you as many details as you need without overwhelming you. Guys, this was a really fun study for me. This was a fantastic week of faith building. And I want to communicate that um, to you in ways that's not overwhelming, but it's so good. Okay, You really want to take this study and run with it. But we're going to kind of walk through logistically how this would have taken place. And then we're going to keep going through, and because they would have had the Passover on, a, on our Thursday, okay? Then Christ would have been that night, would have been arrested, and then the whole Passion Week process begins to take place really rapidly after the Passover. And so we're going to follow Christ and his disciples. They, they leave the Seder, they go into the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we're going to walk through the, the week um, the rest of the weekend and Christ's um, death and resurrection. And then we're going to come back 
and focus on the meaning and the significance of the actual Passover. You with me? Okay, so we're going to run through the whole thing and then come back and refocus. When Christ instituted, this is my blood, this is my body, and we're going to focus in on that, what would that have meant for the disciples? And then lastly, that ought to cause us to consider some applications. What does that mean for us? Okay, sound good? You with me? You ready? Okay, buckle up. Here we go. So here's some historical heroes. The first one um, being Abram or Abraham and Moses. And so in Genesis chapter 15, God appears to a nomad, a man wandering in the wilderness. Now typically, wandering means to move about aimlessly without direction. And while Abraham was definitely wandering, he was not without purpose. Abram, or who became to known as Abraham, was intentionally lost. God had said to him, I want you to pick up your entire family, everything that you have, all of your belongings, and I want you to leave everything that you're familiar with and go to a place for which I will tell you. Where is that? I will tell you. And so Abram, Abraham is wandering aimlessly, but not without purpose. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord calls Abram out of the familiar country of his family and into this land for which he would show him. Abraham is the father of the entire Jewish nation. He was the first Jew. He was the first Israelite chosen by God. And it's while Abram is wandering in this wilderness that the Lord comes to him and makes a covenant with him, the Abrahamic covenant. God, hear this, God chose Abraham. This is a theme that runs all the way throughout Scripture. God chooses people. He graces them with his great gift saying, You would not have chosen me on your own. I chose you. Dead things don't choose. I breathe life into you. I choose you. And this covenant that God makes with Abraham is one of utmost seriousness and commitment. It is a covenant made in blood. There's a request for assurance about God's promise from Abraham. God announces, this is what I am going to do with your descendants. I am going to make you into a great nation. As a great nation, you guys together will exemplify me. You will live out my character traits. You will tell others about me. And through you, the entire world will come to know me. I need you to commit to me. I am committing to you. And Abraham asks for a sign How will I know that this is going to happen? And the Lord responds by engaging Abraham in a ceremony of sorts that Abram would have been familiar with. So Abram is instructed to make a sacrifice of various animals, and he actually cuts the carcasses of those animals in half, and then he separates those carcasses of the animals and lays them opposite of each other, in a convex-shaped rock so that the blood runs together and pools in the center. 
and it creates a pathway of blood. And in this ancient tradition, both parties that would be making a covenant were to walk through the blood path as a symbol of their commitment and their agreement to one another. It also symbolized is it <clears throat> also symbolized in the ceremony is the fate that would befall them should one of them default from their commitment. Once they've walked through there, it's as if they're saying, may it be done unto me as has been done unto these animals if I break my commitment to you. In other words, I will be rent in half and my blood will be spilled if I should ever break this covenant with you. And yet while Abraham sleeps, the Lord walks through this blood path twice. Once for him, once for Abraham. Abraham sleeps through this whole covenant commitment. In doing this, the Lord is communicating to Abraham, Abraham, I am committed to making you into a people that lives in relationship with me, a community that brings other people into relationship with me, who makes my name great, and then a people who enters into my joy and rest. And I am so committed to this covenant and so committed to making this happen that if your people break the covenant in future generations, or rather, when your people break this covenant in future generations, I will pay for your sin and your redemption with my own blood. In other, in other words, I will be rent in half. My blood will flow in order to redeem you for your sins. God is saying to Abraham, Remember this covenant. Believe, I will purchase your redemption with lifeblood. The second faith hero that these disciples would have been familiar with, a person regularly put before him that would have shaped their mind, is Moses. And so generations pass. Abraham has a miraculous son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons' name is Joseph. Joseph was a favored son of his father who was rejected by his brothers and sold as a slave into Egypt. Joseph becomes an unlikely leader in Egypt, and through his position and favor, his entire family, his father, his 11 brothers, their wives, their children, their family, their livestock, all of Abraham's descendants find refuge from a famine by fleeing to their brother's side in Egypt. Maybe you remember this story. And so in Egypt, the Israelites flourish. And yet this flourishing, this favor is short-lived. A few generations after Joseph's death, the Israelites find that this flourishing, this growth of their people in the nation of Egypt becomes very intimidating to the Egyptian government. All of a sudden, the visitors now outnumber the hosts, and the Pharaoh doesn't like this. He has forgotten how 
uh, Joseph was used to save their nation as well. And he now enslaves the Israelites and puts them to hard labor. And so for 400 years, Abram, Abraham's descendants are crushed under the bondage of their Egyptian oppressors. And it's a symbol for the nation of Israel of their own sin and disbelief. And the weight of their sin and disbelief is pictured in their bondage. You with me? So I'm giving us a super fast history lesson. But again, all of this stuff would have shaped the way the disciples and the Israelite people of the time thought and lived. Hello? Do you guys want to drink with me? Something? Thanks, Bob. And so the appointed time, 653 years after God's covenant with Abraham, God stays true to his commitment to his people. And God raises a new leader, Moses. He's also a Hebrew raised among Gentiles. He rises in the rank of the Egyptian government, and he's appointed agent of God's redemptive power for his people. And so we, many of us know this story well. Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, God wants you to let his people go. Pharaoh says, uh, who is God? And no, I'm not doing that, right? And in an intensifying series of judgments, 10 actually, the Egyptians lose their grip on the Israelites. God's people will be set free. And the crescendo judgment is the death angel visiting Egypt and killing all the firstborn in the land. And that's going to be true of not just the Egyptians, but the Israelites, the animals, everything. The firstborn of everything is going to die. They will face the judgment of God. Unless, unless God intervenes. And so he does. He gives instructions to Moses to instruct the people. We're going to read about this soon. I'm summarizing it for us. But Moses instructs the people, those who hear these words of God and believe unto action, you will be redeemed. Sacrifice a lamb. Take the blood and place the blood of that lamb on the lentils and the doorposts of your home. And when the angel of death visits Egypt, when he comes to your home and sees the blood on the lentils and the doorposts, you will be passed over. This is the first Passover. And so this redemptive act of grace actually points back to the blood covenant that God made with Abraham. And once again, God says, I am so committed to this covenant that even if or when you and your descendants break this covenant, I will rescue you from bondage with blood. And so once again, he says to Moses, like he said with Abraham, remember, believe, I will purchase your redemption with lifeblood.
So here's some shaping verses that would have captured, in particular, this whole story. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. This is a great statement that captures the heart of men who say, who is the Lord and why should I obey him? In Exodus chapter 6, God speaks to Moses, and I'm going to kind of summarize this. It's verses uh, 1 through 10, but I want to capture this verse in particular because it really lays out the structure for the Seder dinner, the Passover meal. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord Adonai. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You'll see I highlighted these four I will statements by the Lord, and we're going to talk about these, but each one of those are represented by the four cups that are drank during the Seder, the Passover meal. Exodus chapter 12. If you want to read this out loud with me together, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you shall keep it into the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will be for you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." And this passage continues. This is a second part of the Passover. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, of both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This blood shall be a sign for you and the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Sorry, I think I just reread that. No, I didn't. 
Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. This shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord through your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout all your generations as a statute forever. So there's a lot we could unpack in these verses. And I didn't intend to do this, but I whittled it down to 12 key facts that would have been part of the disciples' thinking when they came to the Passover meal. Again, these are passages, the ones we just read, that they would have been really familiar with. And it's essential for our understanding that the disciples would have known these things and that these ancient stories would have had a significant impact on their thinking and their engagement with Christ Not just in how they experienced the immediate Passover, but also how they would follow him after he was gone. So here's 12 things that I want us to pull out of these verses that I just read and Israel's history that would have been deeply embedded. There's, again, a lot of things we could talk about, but here's 12 things in particular that are really important. One is the repetition of the Passover story. In Exodus chapter 6, the, I'm going to back up with that. In Exodus chapter 6, we would have been, we would have read, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself, team. In Exodus chapter 6, that would have been read at every Passover meal that the disciples have ever participated in. They would have heard that story over and over. Again, it would have formed the structure for the Passover meal. And so those four cups that are represented, I will bring you out, I will rescue you, I will redeem you, I will take you to be my own. Those four promises of the Lord would have been regularly repeated. They would have been part of the disciples' memory. So this repetition of the Passover story. The second thing would have been this theme of remembering. The idea of remembrance is an integral part of the Passover. They're dressing originally. This changes. That's why these tables are low. Tonight the disciples are actually laying down. And we'll talk about why they're no longer standing up. But they're supposed to stand up with their sandals on, their belt tied. They're supposed to have their staff in their hand and they're eating unleavened bread because it doesn't have time to rise and we got to get out of here. This physical reality, they're dressing the part, they're, t- they're telling the story. Why? To remember. Even in Deuteronomy, this word is repeated over and over. Remember, remember, remember. Is this what he told Abraham, remember this covenant. It's what he's telling Moses and the people, remembering. And this idea in Hebrew of remembering is really hard to define. There's a couple of passages in the Old Testament where it's talking about Abraham actually meditating on God's word. But if you read the original Hebrew, it doesn't say Abraham 
meditated on God's word. It says Abraham's tongue wagged about God's word. The reason for that is the Hebrews did not have, weren't able to differentiate between actually thinking something and doing something. There wasn't like you could have this belief and not do anything about it. In the Hebrew mindset, those two things didn't go together. If you believed, you did something. It went hand in hand. There was no belief without action. And so this idea of remembering in the Hebrew language is an intense focus that allows that memory to shape you. As I think about this thing, this call to remember means it assumes when I remember this thing, it's going to shape me. It's going to do something unto me. And so this is not just the Passover, but throughout the history of the Hebrew people, these are feasts and celebrations and rituals, and they're all directed at helping God's people to remember. This would have been deeply embedded in the disciples' culture. The other thing is, and we get this from Hebrews, I'm sorry, from Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, that the Passover is the center of the Hebrew calendar. It is the beginning of the year and it is the end of the year. The other shaping factor for the disciples would have been, and at the center of the Passover is the Passover lamb. Chapter 12, verse 5. This lamb was to be a year old. He was to be perfect without blemish or without sin. And this also was, I call it this, it's a relational lamb. They were instructed, you know, seven days before, 14 days on their calendar, seven seven days before the Passover, they would go out and choose the lamb. They would take the lamb into their home. They would take care of it and feed it for seven days, and then it would be slaughtered at twilight. So this is a lamb that they begin to gain affections for, that they actually realize this thing has life, it's before us, and then this life is gone. It was meant to be a lesson to connect them with the reality of sin costing life. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, we realize that this important reality of this bondage being over That they're dressed and they're ready for a rapid exodus. They're leaving. They were in bondage under the Egyptians and now they are transitioning out of that. There's seven more. This blood shall be a sign. It's a blood covenant. It's pointing back to the Abrahamic covenant. It's it's God's commitment to rescue all people who believe unto action The words of the Lord. Like the Abrahamic covenant, the sacrifice of a lamb symbolized a commitment and the reconciliation between God and man. We're making, we're making reconciliation here. And this belief in this promise required action. You must slaughter the lamb. You must put his blood on the doorposts of your home. If you said, I believe the Passover lamb will save our family, 
and you went to bed without slaughtering the lamb and without putting the blood on the doorposts of your home. If you said, I believe the Passover lamb will save us, but you did not put his blood on your door, you did not wake up in the morning. It was belief that required action. The other thing was instituted in chapter 2, verse 17. You heard this. It was, it, was a, it was a ceremony that's embedded. It's so closely entwined with the Passover meal that it's all, often synonymous, but it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It corresponds with the Passover. It typically starts the night Passover. The Passover meal ends. It was a symbol of Israel's transition from bondage to freedom. And it has multiple symbols beyond that. It was, a symbol, it was also symbolic of the removal of sin. Leaven is, is um, likened to sin and the way that it works itself into our life and to our church even. No Israelite was to have any leaven or sin in their lives this whole week. They were supposed to leave their sin in Egypt and now they're being redeemed out of bondage and into a new life, a new life without sin. It was supposed to be left behind. It was also a symbol of God's provision, provision from bondage, provision of the removal of sin, provision for their basic needs, and it even looks forward to their time in the wilderness when God would feed them with unleavened bread or manna. So it looks forward to his provision. And so this Feast of Unleavened Bread is a gratitude. It was taking bread and saying, Lord, thank you. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. This would have been said over and over and over. And so during each Passover meal, a blessing was prayed over the bread. It's called the Hamatzi. And this is what I just said. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, and then the bread is broken and shared. That would have been practiced for 1,400 years before Jesus ever shows up. The ninth essential thing in the disciples' thinking Well, it wasn't part of the original Passover. It's another key element of the Passover. Just a little over 40 years later, okay, Joshua marches the Israelite people into a land of promise. They pass over the Jordan, and they are now taking over the lands, the cities that already existed. Remember, they chase out the inhabitants of those lands, and they come into a land during harvest season, and they harvest crops that they did not plant. And so the Lord encourages them or commands them to make a feast of first fruits. And they were thanking the Lord for an abundance of provisions for which they did not labor. You see in some connections, the Lord takes them into a promised land and they're receiving the benefits for things that they didn't labor for. And the Lord says, I want you to celebrate this. And so in this feast, participants raise a cup of wine and give thanks for God's abundant goodness. It's called the Kaddush. And so they say, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit from the vine. Why am I telling you all this? 
Because for 1400 years, all of this stuff is embedded in the disciples' culture. Bread is raised and broken. Cups are raised and drank. The disciples would have heard their parents say, their grandparents say, they would have said, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, cup, the, the fruit from um, the vine. Over and over, these things would have been rattling around in their minds. And small elements of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits all made it into the weekly Shabbat. So on Friday nights, when they would pause and rest, the breaking of bread, the drinking of the wine is weekly something they would do, would do. So not just annually, but it's something that would take place in their homes weekly. Now we're almost done, okay? So two more components that would have been really impactful for the disciples' mindset. The first one is the Mosaic sacrificial system, and the second one is a Hebrew marriage tradition. They've carried these things into their understanding of the Passover. Let me cover them real quick. So under Moses, while in the desert, the Lord provides, you are now outside of Egypt. I'm going to come into your nation, but you need a place for me to meet with you. So you need a portable temple. So I want you to build a temple like this. And in order for me to dwell there, it must be completely pure and holy. And so there must be blood sacrifices to cover over the sin in order that I might meet with you. And so there were a lot of different kinds of sacrifices and rituals, grain offerings and um, fruit offerings and animal sacrifices. But at the heart of the sacrificial system, at the pinnacle, six days a week, a lamb was sacrificed at 3 p.m. every day. So no matter where you were in the nation of Israel, this is called a shofar, at 3 p.m. at every day, multiples of these would be blown by the Israelites. I'm not going to do it. I tried. I even looked online. They show you how to do your lips and everything. And I think it would be a distraction, okay? But at 3 p.m. every day, the priests would stand ready with lambs and knives. Other priests would be stand with the shofar, the minute 3 p.m. hits, the shofars blow all throughout Israel. People can hear. And it's a ta-da, ta-da. And immediately, the, the throats of the lamb were slit. And devout Jews everywhere would pause for a moment and say, Lord God, right now a life is being shed so that I can have relationship with you. And they would pause and remember, it takes a blood sacrifice to bring God into our community. 3 p.m. every day. And so this shofar would be blown. The nation would stop six days a week. Every day, a redemptive death announced. And there's three repetitive themes. You have sin that needs to be atoned for. Blood must be shed in order to atone for your sins. And God has promised to remove your sins from you. And then there was another tradition it was a Hebrew marriage tradition. Now, we don't know exactly when this took place, but somewhere in the middle of this history, and it was definitely around while Jesus and his disciples were having the Passover, this tradition also looks back at the blood covenant that's made with Abraham. 
I don't know how, remember how long Johnny and Emma have been married, but if you remember, I did a portion of this if you were there at their wedding. This is still done in many Jewish traditional weddings. So after a bride price was agreed upon by both the father of the groom and the father of the bride, the father of the groom would take a pitcher of wine, he would pour his son a cup, he would go over to his son and give it to his son, his son would then take this cup and he would offer it to, I don't know what they call them, fiancés, I don't think that was it, that's French, right? Maybe it was... I don't know. I won't say. Okay. But he, he offers this cup. His father gives him life. He takes his life and he offers it to his bride. And he says, this is my life. Will you take my life into you? And this is her part to either say I do or not. But she could either say it out loud or she could say it by taking the cup And drinking it. And by taking the cup and drinking it, she would say, I take your life as a gift, as a ransom for me, as a payment. Your, our fathers have agreed upon a payment. You're offering me your life as that payment. I am taking the payment of your life. I am taking your life into me and I am giving my life back to you. And again, this is a modern That's the sacrificial lamb. This is a modern practice that still happens today. So let me summarize. Here's some cultural repetition that's been going on for 1,400 years. The Passover feast, of un the Feast of Unleavened Breads, the Feast of First Fruits. 1,400 years. 73,000 weeks. Shabbat, the breaking of bread, the drinking of the wine, 511,000 days, six days a week, a shofar blows and a lamb is slaughtered. Year after year, day after day, week after week, remember, 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 remember. This is burned into the disciples' minds. Four promises in this rhythmic hum of the entire Jewish life. I will bring you out. I will set you free. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. Remember, 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 remember. Let this memory shape the way you live. So let's think about that as we get some disciples coming up here to our table. This is the mindset in which they come. If you're 14 years old to 14 to 21 years old, raise your hands for me, please. We got 12. Do you believe it? Okay. So if you're a male, 14 And above, I want you to stand up. I want to make sure I got my counting right, please. Okay, Luke, you come up. I want you to sit over there. Isaiah, I want you to sit in this far corner. Where's brother Nick? Okay, I'm going to need Nick a babysitter. 
Okay, we got a few too many. You three boys go up. Just find a spot. Z, you're at the front one here. You three boys, come on up. I'll take the three brothers, okay? That'll be good, all right? You guys have a seat, sorry. And we haven't met before. Tell me your name. Alexander. Alexander, nice to meet you. William, William nice to meet you. John, great to meet you. Oh, John, we got a John. Okay. And you work at Bear Hardware. Yes. yes now we've met before. Okay. Well, come on up here, guys. Uh, you, you can't sit there. I want you here. Uh, we won't go with your name. John, you're here. Okay. You're here. Yes, right there. Okay. You boys fill in someplace in there. Now, do we have Nick? Okay, Nick, I need you up here. And the reason I need Nick here is because in February he turned 33 years old. Okay. So, Nick, I want you right here. Please. Okay. Now, you boys, once you arrived at the table, you would lay down on your left side. Now, like I so I want you to do that. Go ahead and recline on your left side. Okay. So, yes. That's exactly right. Now, the reason they would have reclined on their left-hand side is because after Moses entered into, after Joshua took the nation into um, the promised land, the rabbis got together and said, well, we used to eat in haste, but now we're in the promised land, we're resting. And so rather than standing in haste, we are now in the promised land, we should be resting. And so that's the reason for you guys um, sitting this way. Now, the reason I chose you between ages 14 and 21 is because it is most likely taken from the word of Uncle Ray, who you guys know, a Jewish historian that I love, but I read many commentaries on this. Most commentaries believe that the disciples would have been around 13 to 15 years old when they were chosen to follow Jesus. And so now we're three years later past the original choosing, and so the oldest of the disciples was likely John, who was 23 years, who would have been 21 years old. I chose Isaiah for this position because he's 21, and also because he has a, a spirit like John's. And then Peter would have been over here, that's Luke's seat, and Luke kind of reminds me of Peter a little bit, and, and it's likely that Peter was about 19 years old. He was a little bit older, and they take that based on when they died, and then the fact that they wouldn't have been chosen before they were 13 years old. So they would have been roughly 14 and a half or 15 years old. Cade, how did you not make it in the cut? Okay, that's okay. All right. Wait a minute. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Twelve. Come on, buddy. You're up here. Okay, we're missing one. Okay, so here they are. 15, 14 to 21 years old. Their leader is 33. Okay. Young men, I want you to, I want you to look at me for a second. I want you to think about the reality of what we're talking about here. 15 to 21-year-old young men. 
with a leader. Church, look at this group. Boys, listen to me. The disciples would have been the moral, homeschooled. No, really. The homeschooled, middle class, lower middle class, come from blue collar workers, kids, young men. But they spent three of their last years with Jesus. Look at your ages. This is why Paul says to Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. And by the way, the world will tell you, hey, it's normal to be a teenager and sow your oats and do your thing and be lazy and take it easy. This is what the world says. This group of 11, 12 teenage boys with their leader, who John would later say, I'm sorry, Luke in the book of Acts would later say, these were unlearned men, but they had taken note that they had spent time with Jesus. Hear me, boys. Because they spent time with Christ, they changed the world. And they were homeschooled, lower middle class, like you. Because they were with Jesus, because they considered Christ, they changed the world. Do not underestimate the power of the Spirit of God in you. You see this, church? Now, okay, let's, okay, here's our boys. We're pretty excited about it. But let's just take ourselves out of the mind. The Lord used a 33-year-old God and 12 half-baked juveniles change the world. Why? It is not by power or might, says the Lord, but by my Spirit. Now what's funny in Luke chapter 2, Luke records that this gaggle of boys were having a discussion about who was first, who was the greatest, okay? Well, the reason they're they're not just being idiots, although you could kind of see this boys group of boys left in a campsite for any length of period of time might be shambles and they might be acting like idiots, okay? But think about how neat it is that God captures the adolescent heart and here's a group of boys and they're wondering who's the greatest. Well, part of the reason they're wondering the greatest is because this seating position is actually pretty important. Now, where would we normally put the important guest of honor? Well, we yeah, we'd, we'd typically put them here at the head of the table. But at the Hebrew, um, in the Hebrew mindset, the guest of honor was here. This is the leader of the table. And then these two positions are actually the honored positions. And so you can picture this group of boys kind of tossing into this room and banging into each other and figuring out who's going to sit where. Who gets these seats? Well, John gets the seat and Peter gets the servant seat. This is the servant seat over here. And guess who gets the other honored place? Judas. Sorry, John. Okay. 
Judas gets the other seat of honor. Now we know that because three people, so you three would use one bowl. You three would use one bowl of bitter herbs. You three would use one bowl, three, one bowl of bitter herbs. So each team would use one bowl of bitter herbs. So there's this huge question about who's going to deny Christ. We'll talk about this in a minute. And he says, the one in whom I'm dipping the bowl. This is why at part in the, if you read the accounts, this is during part of this meal, Peter, and this is along with Uncle Ray, why I believe Peter is here for a couple of reasons. One, because at one point in time, Peter talks across to John and says, who is it? Ask him who it is. Well, it makes sense if he's over here. The other thing that makes sense is Jesus sent Peter and John ahead to prepare the Passover meal. And so these guys are all out and about. Jesus says, you two, I want you to go prepare the Passover. So this one and Peter and John have come in. They've prepared the meal and they've chosen where people are sitting. And Peter puts himself here in the servant spot. Now remember, this group of young men has just spent three years with Jesus. Now, in our calendar, Jesus enters into Jerusalem three days previous to this meeting. Jesus enters into Jerusalem and there's a big crowd. You guys remember this? And then they start laying down palm fronds and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why is all the crowd there? The crowd is there in Jerusalem because guess what day it is? We call it Palm Sunday. But guess what day they would have called it? Lamb Selection Day. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem with his disciples, the Passover Lamb, on Lamb Selection Day. Three days of intense ministry. The Passover's coming. He sends Peter and John to get the Passover ready. Now, as we've mentioned, there's four cups that shaped the Passover. The first cup isn't mentioned in any of the gospel stories. I think, this is my thinking, I think it's because... In many ways, they assumed that everybody kind of knew what was going on. The first cup isn't mentioned. We assume that it's there. We already know that they've started the process because at multiple times, it's in three of four of the Gospels, they either say, as the meal was going or during the meal. So we know that that's happening. But we also know that after the first cup, the Kaddush, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe. After that cup, the first cup, it's a welcome cup. It is the, um, what cup is that, team? You remember? I will bring you out. It's a welcome. I'm coming to get you. I'm, I'm coming to bring you, to bring you out of slavery. After that cup, this hands are ceremonial washed. But what happens here? Okay, so we've, hey boys, we've had our cup, right? And now we're talking a little bit, and now we're getting ready to do our hand washing. But what takes place instead of hand washing? Jesus gets up, 
And he comes over and he grabs a jar and a basin and a towel. And before he does that, he takes off his outer garment and he sets it aside. And then he pours a bowl and then he comes over here. Sorry, he comes over here and he starts with his guest of honor and he starts washing the disciples' feet. And it says when he, when he came to Peter, which I think means he was at the end of the line. Do you guys remember what Peter says? Not my feet, but my whole self. Okay. So Jesus is doing two things. I've always heard that he is giving an example of servanthood, which he is. He tells his disciples that as I'm serving you, this is what you are to do. You're to serve other people. But he's also giving them the lesson on what cleanliness actually means. When he comes to Peter, he sovereignly knows he's going to have this discussion with Peter. And Peter says, not just my feet, but my whole body also. And Peter says, and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're already clean. We're not talking about repentance here. And he has this discussion about cleanliness. So in the place of washing hands, um, Jesus actually washes their feet. And then after he is done, he picks his robe back up and puts it on. This is symbolic. He puts his robe or his mantle off. And then he serves his disciples. And then when he's done and he talks to him about cleanliness and that I am cleaning you. And then when he's done with that, he puts his mantle back on. And so earlier John records Jesus saying, I have given up my life freely. Nobody has taken it from me. I take my life off and I put it on again. I am the authority of my own life and I do it unto God. He takes off his robes of righteousness. He serves mankind and shows them what cleanliness is and cleanse them. And then he puts his robe back on. And so right after this, he says, but not all are clean. So in the Seder, you have the first cup, and then you have the traditional washing, and then right after the traditional washing, you have the eating of the bitter herbs. And so disciples, you would have taken a little bit of bread, you would have dipped it in the bitter herbs, and you have eaten bitter herbs. But this is the point where he says, but not all of you are clean. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Judas. Now, there's a lot of confusion around this, and if you read the Gospels, it's really hard to figure out what exactly is going on. I think part of it is the disciples are talking back in hindsight, so they're recounting the story. They know who it is now, but they didn't understand, and so, you know, Jesus is constantly talking in parables and 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 word pictures, and so he's like, well, the person in whom I'm dipping the cup, and you would think all the disciples, well, he just dipped to it. I mean, you would think it would be obvious, but it wasn't. And I'm thinking they might have been thinking, well, this is a word picture or it's a parable. But you, you totally get this from the gospel accounts because all the disciples are like, we don't know who he's talking about. And even John says, is it me, Lord? And Peter again says, John, ask him. And so John leans back. This is how we know John is here with Jesus. He leans back on Jesus's chest and he's saying, who is it? But nonetheless, all of the Gospels see this and they know who it is in hindsight. And it's Judas. 
We don't know if Judas gets up and leaves right after the bitter herbs or if he remains there the whole dinner. It seems to me that he remained there the whole dinner or there wouldn't have been any further confusion. But it does say that some of the disciples thought he went up to go purchase something else. So it could have been that he left the whole meal early. So here's an overview. After the first cup is the washing of their hands, Jesus washes their feet. And then there's the eating of bitter herbs and he identifies the betrayer. Then they eat the meal. This is the Passover meal. And again, they're laying down on their left, eating with their right Now, at the end of the meal is the third cup. It's the cup of redemption. So they're done eating. And this is where it says, and Jesus, after the meal was over, he took the cup. It's referring to the third cup. It's the cup of redemption. And this is the cup that Jesus says, this is my blood given for you. Do this. What? Remember. 1,400 years we're building on it. Don't forget. Remember. And then he takes the bread. He breaks it. And again, we're going to come back to this. He would raise it. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who give forth the bread from the earth. He breaks the bread, and then he hands it to his disciples. This is my body, broken for you. Do this. Remember. There's a fourth cup. It's called, uh, it's I will take you out and make you my people. And it's actually, you see this fairly clearly. I think it's in two of the four gospels. Jesus says, it's this cup. It's the fourth cup that I'm not going to drink again. Until I'm with you in the kingdom. Awesome. Right? Here's this fourth cup. This fourth cup of I'm going to make you my people. And Jesus says I'm not drinking this one. Because the next time I drink this. We're going to be in the kingdom together. I'm going to take you. To be my people. I'm going to make you my people. So then they sing a hymn. They go out to the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus goes out to pray. He leaves the disciples. He says, I'm going to go pray. Please pray with me. Remember this? Then the rabbis have added after this a fifth cup. It's called Elijah's cup. It's the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is actually asking in the Garden of Gethsemane, allow this cup, this fifth cup, this cup of your wrath, allow this to pass me. But God says, no, it's my will. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus doesn't drink the cup of wrath. He pours out the cup of wrath. It literally comes out of his pores. And while Jesus is agonizing over this covenant to be made in blood. Remember Abraham? What was Abraham doing when God was making a covenant He was sleeping. And while the God of the universe is making a covenant for the blood of his people, what are his followers doing? They're sleeping. God comes for us and he does it all. Church, 
Then Jesus is arrested. He's put on a mock trial under the cloak of darkness. He's beaten beyond recognition. On Friday afternoon, he suffers an agonizing crucifixion. He looks up to heaven and utters the final words of his crucifixion. It is finished. Guess what time it was? It's 3 p.m. And at the minute Christ pushes himself up with his last breath and cries out, it is finished, all throughout Jerusalem, ah, ah, thousands, hundreds of horns possibly blowing. It's 3 p.m. The, the throat of lambs is slit everywhere and his disciples are standing there. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is finished, and at three o'clock, he gives up his life. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, could spend a whole sermon on this. Think about this. He dies before sundown on Passover. That night, he's planted into the ground. The one who says, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. And his disciples are going, what does he mean he's the bread of life? If we eat of him, drink of him. Now it's coming more clear. This one who said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it can do nothing. The, the, The grain of wheat is planted into the ground. And guess when he raises? Sunday. Which is what festival? Feast of the first fruits. Jesus raises from the dead on the day that the feast of first fruits is celebrated. And so that we can gain a harvest that we did not earn. So why Paul says to the Corinthians, Jesus is the first fruits from the grave. That's what he's talking about. Gentlemen, you've been a great help. You can return to your seats, okay? Thank you. I don't know about you. I laid there on my side for a while. I would not want to eat a meal like that. But So thank you for hanging in there. Here's some realities about the disciples' experience. It's likely that they were averaged 19 years old. I did some calculations. By the time they were 19, they would have heard the shofar roughly 7,000 times. I'm not clear on this. There was also a sacrifice at noon. I'm not sure if the shofar blew at noon and at three. I know it was the bigger deal at three. Regardless, at minimum, they heard the shofar blow 7,000 times. 1,040 times, they would have sat down for a Shabbat meal with their family. 1,000, was it? 1,040 times, minimum, they would have said, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit from the vine. 
minimum, they would have said together 1,040 times, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. 19 Passover celebrations. You know, 17, maybe 18, 16 that they would have remembered. 19 feasts of unleavened bread. 19 feasts of the first fruits. Weddings, maybe anticipating their own, where they're watching friends and family members hand cups to their bride and say, this is my lifeblood. Will you give your life to me in return? And this rhythmic hum of the entire Jewish life and over and over and over, they had sensed these things. And maybe just like you and I, they would have grown accustomed to this and they're all laying around talking and the hum of this Passover meal like they had done many times before, like had been done in their culture thousands of times before. Maybe they got lulled to sleep, but they would have started waking up when Jesus didn't wash their hands but washed their feet. But for sure, for absolute sure, when the cup is taken and Jesus raises the cup and he says, blessed are you, Lord, our God, king of the universe, who brings forth fruit from fruit from the vine. And then he turns to the disciples and says, this is my blood in a new covenant church. Their minds would have went. What is he saying? No rabbi would have ever, ever had said, this is the Abrahamic covenant. This is my blood. And I'm giving it up for you. All this rhythmic, constant ceremony, and their minds would have been completely and utterly blown. What does he mean? What is he saying? His blood offered the old Abrahamic covenant. This has been embedded in their history forever. Now it's being made new. It's coming to fruition here, now. And then unceremoniously, he then takes the cup, says that this is my blood, and then he thrusts it out to them and says, take it and drink from it. This is this marriage ceremony being put to them in real life. Now this would have been blown a bunch of teenage boys away because he's actually saying there's no closer way for me to express this to you but through like a marriage ceremony and I'm telling you this is my life. Will you take my life into you and will you become mine? Will you allow me to purchase you And then will you drink of my cup and belong to me? Blown away. And then he says, this is my body. Broken for you. This is an entirely new feast. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you take of this cup. Not just Passover. Every Shabbat, every feast, every holiday, every time you take this cup. Remember. Specifically, do it regularly. Be intentional about it. And every time you drink of it, 
remember me. Every time you take bread in my name and it's broken, remember me. Consider me. Let your memory of me shape you. Be transformed by your considering of me. Church, here's our response. One, we should remember. Every time we take of the cup and the bread, we should remember. A memory that shapes us, that changes us. Every time we pick up the cup for a drink, every time we eat of bread, consider an intense focus that changes you, consider Jesus. Organize your life around considering Him. You're getting ready to make a decision? Consider Him. The first response for us is to remember. The second response is, Jesus presents you and me with an invitation like his disciples that says, take my life into you. I am paying the dowry for you. I am purchasing you with my blood. Will you take of my life? This is way more than a get out of jail free card. True? This is way more than, well, if I, if I say this thing or pray this prayer, or then someday in heaven I will be with Christ. This is an invitation to abiding life, just like a marriage. Almost similar to a marriage. Paul would say, this is a great, min- this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ's love for his church. That's what marriage represents. And Jesus, in like manner, says, This is my life. Will you take of it? And in our taking of it, and we take of the cup and we drink, this is why Paul warns, if you aren't committed to Christ, don't take of the cup. Because if you're not committed and you say you are, you're in trouble. You drink damnation on yourself. Don't say you're committed and drink of the cup and then walk away like you're not. You can't say, I believe in the Lamb, and then not put the blood on the doorposts of your life. You can't do it. This is an all-consuming, all-in, live-with-me, build-your-life-around-me invitation. And maybe you've never thought about it this way. Maybe for the first time in your life you thought, I just kind of thought it was it makes my life better, or... Somehow, it'll keep me from doing bad things or, you know, my parents are doing it or it's kind of popular at church and keeps me out of trouble. Maybe, maybe you've thought about it this way and for the first time in your life, you're like, oh, it's a relationship. It's a committed, there are no other lovers, it's me and you, monogamous, till the day I die. 
Richer, poorer, sickness and health. Me and you, Jesus, I'm committed to you. I will have no other lovers. I will have no other gods. This is me and you. And maybe you've never thought about it that way and you need to. It's an invitation. And it's the most wonderful invitation you ever receive. And Jesus extends it to us today. And so the first application for us today to consider is we just need to remember. And the second application is that we take Christ in and we become, we, we live in him. We make our home with him. And then the last part is something that through the last several months, but then also through this study, you know, one of the things that I've realized is as, you know, ever since the Reformation, as an evangelical community, we don't like ritual and ceremony. You know, oh man, that's just legalism and it, the Bible's full of it, by the way. Hundreds of thousands of times, remember, 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 remember. You know one of the things that struck me about the nation of Israel? God determined their calendar. He fixed their day timer. And then they organized their lives around God. You know what our temptation is to do? We fill our own calendar. And then we fit God into our lives. Okay, I'm not suggesting... That ritual and ceremony is the answer. We all know people who have tons of ritual and ceremony and they don't know Jesus at all. Okay, But I am saying that a practical way for us to organize our lives, to develop a mindset of considering Christ, is to allow him to drive our calendars. And picking intentional times. Okay, first, let me be real super clear. As long as you've got one and two right, you're remembering and you belong to him. Okay, I'm not talking about earning a relationship with the Lord. You hear clear? Okay. But I am talking about developing, once He has our hearts, developing some habits, whatever you want to call them, ceremonies, rituals, where you intentionally set aside time to consider Christ, to remember Him. We ought to be doing that moment by moment. But certainly, every day we set aside time. I'm going to remember you. Every week we set aside time. I'm going to remember you. This is important. This goes into our calendar. Every month we're going to remember you. We're not going to move from this. We're not going to adjust our calendars. You know why? Because we organize our lives around you. You don't organize your life around us. And I'm just telling you one practical way is that we begin, we continue to develop these intentional moments where I'm remembering you. I'm organizing my life around you. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think about a Passover meal with the disciples and their minds around always remembering and then being completely caught off guard, King Jesus, when you offered them your life. And then to see that run through through your crucifixion and then your resurrection and then a group of young men turning the world upside down and literally dying for you. Their lives were forever changed because they considered Jesus, because they remembered you. And so, Lord, through all this history and detail, my prayer is that this builds our faith, that, Lord, you are so creative and intricate and detailed that you have all of our lives in your hands and we can rest in that.
Surely, if you can figure out the universe for thousands of years, you can figure out our 70, and we can trust you. So, Lord, as we remember you, as we take your life into us and we make our home in you, as we abide in you, and as we organize our lives around you and this very community around you, would you be glorified and lifted up to a people who desperately need you? Would Vine and Branch be a community of people that says Christ is our king, it's not about us, we're following him, come join us, he's amazing. Would you make us in to that community of people as we grow in our ability to remember Christ, to consider him, and to organize our lives around him? For your glory and our joy, Lord, make us this people to bring your name, to put your attributes on display, to give you glory. And so as we eat tonight, and as we drink together, and as we celebrate, and as we consider all that you have done for us in this season, may our conversation be filled with praise to you, and gratitude, and um, stirring one another up towards love and good deeds. And we pray for these, we pray these bold prayers, because Christ has made it possible the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world, and we rest in him. Amen.